Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. Today, I'm going to cover our second installment in our series entitled How to Make It Big in America. So a couple things real quick. First of all, you don't have to be in America to make these principles and traits work for you. Uh, Second of all, you don't have to be foreign-born in order to have the immigrant edge. And third, if you're listening to the second episode and you haven't listened to the first episode, I'd highly recommend you stop what you're doing and go and download part one of How to Make Big in America to go listen to us. Uh, Before you listen to this one, we built out the problem. We shared the seven reasons why many people are not making it big. And so today is the solution side. And today is really the nuts and bolts of the book that I've uh, written. I'm very, very thankful. It's become a a best-selling book here uh, called The Emigrant Edge. Thanks to many of you listening who not only pre-ordered it, but bought it and bought it for your friends and clients and great stuff. Good for you. Good for them. All the proceeds of the book are going back to being reinvested in the promotion of the book to get the message out to as many people as possible. We want to positively impact people, encourage people, and help people fulfill their God-given destiny and ultimately become as successful as they want to be. So I'm going to dive in today, and I'm going to cover the seven traits of successful emigrants. Okay? Now, an emigrant, again, spelled with an E, is a person who leaves their home to permanently settle in another place. So here's a thought for you. Anybody who's ever set a goal to improve themselves, change their life, change their business, positively change, stop a negative behavior and start a better behavior, that's someone who is an emigrant because they want to permanently move to a different place. And so I believe these traits are very, very helpful for all of us. Like I say, my children have the emigrant edge and yet were American-born. So you don't have to have bad things in your life happen to you. You don't have to have grown up in, under a bridge somewhere in order to, to use these things. But I do believe that these elements, not only have I seen them work in my own life, have I seen them be transferred to my kids, my staff, ultimately our clients. We have 20,000 businesses we coach. In our real estate clientele, they have eight times the success of their peers. The average realtor is making about 30 grand. Our average coach clients uh, last year was 360 grand. So they're doing a lot better. So these principles are transferable, they're adaptable, and they are implementable. So wanted to salt the oats there a little bit for you, kind of whet your appetite. So I'm going to walk you through these seven traits and a little bit of the thinking behind them and a little bit of the application behind them so you can make it big where you are no matter where you come from. So first and foremost, again, The Emigrant Edge was written not only from my own perspective, but many of the Fortune 500 companies have been established or started by either emigrants or the children of emigrants. Forbes, 400, the 400 wealthiest people in the world, many of them were emigrants and made their fortunes far from where they were born 
or where they had the advantage of knowing the culture, knowing the routine, knowing the language, knowing people, having access to capital, those kinds of things. So that's why I feel if someone who's coming here with basically everything they own in a duffel bag slung over their shoulder and they've made it success over and over and over and over again and you see this pattern repeat itself over and over again, then there's something up. There's something there. And as a student of success, which hopefully we all are listening to this show, you want to understand those patterns. Now, again, I want to make the point that not everyone who's an immigrant, not everyone who leaves their home becomes successful. These are the traits of the successful ones, and they're very, very common. So here's the first trait, and it's in order priority in this regard, as far as a chronological order, not a value order. So the first trait that gives you that emigrant edge is a voracious openness to learn, a voracious openness to learn. So there's an openness, there's a learning, and there's a voraciousness to it, okay? My good friend and mentor, Les Brown, in his talks, would say, you got to be hungry. you got to be hungry. And hungry is different than hungry. Hungry is that it's not just the hunger because you're trying to satisfy the need, but it's a deep-down desire, okay? Hungry enough to learn, to improve, sometimes to reinvent yourself. You know, I read a book years ago, a powerful book, that said, what got you here won't get you there. And sometimes you reach a certain level of success and you plateau, and you're using the same skills, the same thinking, and you can't understand why you can't get any further. Well, you've got to go back to school for yourself, the school of not just hard knocks, but of self-development, of improvement, of mentorship, of engagement, of synergy. You've got to be hungry to seek out, how do I get to the next level? And you've got to go hang out with people at the next level. You know, you want to grow beyond your current circumstances. You want to start being a person who doesn't have excuses. When you're hungry, you're not listening to excuses. You're not listening to your own excuses. Remember, nobody is a greater salesperson on our own lack of success than ourselves, okay? We have great excuses, and especially those of us who are good in the area of sales, we're gifted at coming up with excuses, you know? Zig Ziglar used to say, uh, I'm 37 pounds overweight, and uh, I never ate anything by accident. But he used to say, you know, his body retained ice cream, right? That was a great excuse, right? A clever one. You know, this whole dynamic of uh, you get knocked down, but you get up again. There was a British drinking song, from a band called Chumba Wumba. And it used to say, I get knocked down, but I get up again. My brothers used to play that and say that was my theme song. Now, my brothers know the whole story. My brothers know how many setbacks I've overcome, how many challenges I've overcome, houses burning down, businesses imploding, recessions come and take, and this and any other, illnesses, this, uh, you name it, you face it. Here's the thing, life, I'm not immune to it. It's just from the outside looking in, people think I've never had a bad day. Everything I've touched has turned to gold, and it happened quickly, easily, and because I have a good sense of humor, it must have been a lot of fun to do all the way along. Now, maybe not. So a voracious openness to learn. You've got to be hungry. You know, successful people go out of their way to meet other people. You know, when you're a duckling, you want to hang out with ducks, but when you're a duck, you want to hang out with eagles, right? You don't want to hang out with turkeys. Can you hang out with a turkey, you become a turkey. And turkeys do well when everyone's doing well. You know, I always used to say a turkey can fly in a hurricane, right? So, you know, when the market's flying and everybody's doing great, the turkey can do well. But what you want to be is you want to be hanging out with the eagles. You want to be soaring with those guys. And uh, when you hang out with those folks, you find out ordinary people 
who think a little differently, who offer advice. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I became a millionaire essentially when I read one little book, a book that at the time cost me $6.95 called The Richest Man in Babylon, one of our later podcasts. I'm actually going to read one of the five stories, but the main story of The Richest Man in Babylon. Here's what happened. Three people that I had a chance to meet who were successful business people, I asked them to go to lunch. And two of them recommended the book to me because I'm like, hey, I want to be more successful. I want to get ahead in life. And two of the people recommended The Richest Man in Babylon. The third one gave me a cassette tape from a guy named Jim Rohn. And on the cassette tape, Jim Rohn mentioned The Richest Man in Babylon. So three successful people all led me to the same book. So guess what? I bought the book. Now, here's the thing. Here's what's human. I bought the book. And then it took me a while before I read the book. In fact, I got into a little more uh, financial difficulty before I read the book. That's human nature. But ultimately, you got a, a voracious openness to learn. Now, here, here's where I got hooked. I read the book. I wrote down the principles of the book. I started to apply the principles of the book. I started to get some financial momentum. And then what it did for me was, I wonder what other books are out there. I wonder what other things I could learn. Could I learn something about time management? Could I learn something about goal setting? Could I learn something about tracking and improvement? Could I learn something about negotiation? Could I learn something about developing a business? Could I learn something about hiring a staff? Could I learn something about investing? Could I learn something about growing a fortune? Could I learn something about building a corporation? Here's the thing. The fella that's coming to you today is a work in progress. I'm 30 years into my American journey. And I'm looking forward to the next 30 years. I got a great foundation right now. I got a great foundation that I can grow. Hey, I just got my AARP card in the mail the other day. The sign of the apocalypse happened to me the other day. And lo and behold, you know, I used to be the new kid on the block with the new referral thing that took the real estate industry by storm. I have an AARP card, but here's the deal. I am more fired up about the next 30 years because now I'm building from a great platform. I still have that voracious openness to learn. I'm not hungry. I eat well. I live well. I don't need to work. I could retire if I wanted. But I'll tell you this. I'm more hungry than I've ever been to impact and improve the lives of more people, to be more voracious. Our company's going to promote and build, and whether it be books and podcasts and our coaching programs and our seminars and our events. Boom. More hungry. So the first thing is you got to be hungry. The second thing is you got to just do it. Nike is right, right? So Nike is that symbol for victory, but you can't have victory if you don't do it. And they came up with the phrase, just do it. You know, it's, it's a great thought. Joe Nego is a, a speaker and presenter, my very best friend, and uh, he speaks on behalf of the company. Brilliant, brilliant businessman. And he came up with a, a phrase about just doing it. It's called uh, Nike Joma. Nike Joma stands for this. Nike is just do it. Just do it now is what Joe says. So that's the Nike Joe part. And then his ma says, just do it again. So just do it. Just do it now. And then just do it again. You know, action is what matters when it comes to reaching your goals. And if you're not moving, you're not growing. There is never a more perfect time to do anything than right now. Okay? The great Will Rogers used to say, if you're on the right track, You'll get run over if you just sit there. So you got to keep moving. You know, we live on a planet that spins. We live on a planet that turns. You know, we come into this world bald and naked. We leave this world bald and naked. There's a whole bunch of stuff happens in between. And so we got to just do it. So you got to be hungry. That's the desire. And then you got to just do it. And you know, here's the thing. 
you'll never have all the resources you need. You'll never have all the knowledge you need. You'll never do it mistake-free. You'll never do it perfectly. I mean, when you do something perfectly, it's something you already know how to do. That's called a routine, right? That's brushing your teeth. You know how to do that. It's when you go to try something new, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to do it perfectly. There's a learning curve. of But you know what? Even if there's this little bit of a stress and strain in the middle of it, you'll never feel more alive. And the voracious openness to learn, boy, it makes you feel alive. So you've got to be hungry. You've got to just do it with the Nike Joma. And then you've got the Can-I. C-A-N-I. A nice little acrostic that says, constant and never-ending improvement. You know... Uh, one of my favorite quotes, you can't change the sea, the soil, the rain, the sunshine, or the seasons, but you can work on your philosophy, okay? Albert Einstein said, we're blessed to live in an age where knowledge is so easily accessible. Intellectual growth should commence at birth and cease only at death. Now think about that. Intellectual growth should commence at birth and cease only at death. I never forget it. I had a client come to me in our first year of business. Her name was Arlene Holt. And Arlene called our company. And she said, I'd like to speak to Mr. Buffini. Well, you can imagine, Buffini and Company gets thousands and thousands of phone calls a month. And a lot of times, because my name's on the business, they want to speak to Mr. Buffini. So, you know, your chance of getting through to Mr. Buffini, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't know how to help you mostly. But um, there's hundreds of people trying to do that. But this lady calls in. She goes, I need to speak to Mr. Buffini. And so well, what does he need to speak to Mr. Buffini about? Well, I'm considering getting involved in his coaching program, and I need to see if he's a man I can trust. So great. Our front desk receptionist, we call her the creator of first impressions. She refers Arlene over to one of our staff, a man named Bart Eddy, who helped people who had questions about coaching and so on and so forth. And she gets on the phone with him, and she says, hey, look, Mr. Eddy, I appreciate you trying to help me, but I'm 80 years of age. I have a 25-year business plan. And I've heard Brian Buffini's the man who can get me there. And so I like to tell people, you tell a lie like that, you'll get through to me too. So Arlene got through to Brian Buffini. And I had a chat with her. And it became a relationship. And she called up looking for coaching from Buffini Company, which she did. But she was my inspiration in so many ways. She didn't make her 25-year goal. Arlene passed away a little over a year ago at the wonderful age of 97. At 94, she had had her best year ever in business, by the way. Arlene had more life to her at 80 than most people do at 40. And she had a voracious openness to learn at 80 years of age. By the way, she was American-born. She lived in the west coast of Florida. She was hungry. She just did it. And she was committed to constant and never-ending improvement. I'm going to tell you this. The reason she was an inspiration to me, she was so young at heart, young in spirit, because she was always growing always growing so the first element that's there when you're an immigrant and you come to the new land you better grow you better learn and the successful ones do and they learn not only how to adapt to the culture but they ultimately find out how to identify the needs of the culture and then they learn how to build a business in the new land that serves the needs and does it better than anybody else and that's why they build huge companies and that's why they build huge fortunes but they do it because they have a voracious openness to learn you can do that too. Here's the second trait of how to make it big in America. A do-whatever-it-takes mindset. Do whatever it takes. We used to actually give badges to our staff at different events and so on and so forth that just would say, do whatever it takes. You know, life favors the persistent and the willing. Successful immigrants are willing to go out of their comfort zones 
and do the things they don't necessarily want to do and take the risks, make the difficult decisions in order to succeed. Now, do whatever it takes is not a statement of questionable ethics. Very important. Do whatever it takes means I'm faced with a challenge. I got this big boulder in my way. People come up to the boulder, I don't know how. I don't know how. There's a boulder in front of my way. Let me just back up. There's a boulder in front of my way. Let me just stop. There's a boulder. But do you want to see there's a boulder? By the way, there's a boulder. Everybody knows the boulder. My boulder is bigger than your boulder. You see my boulder? I can't do it because I have a boulder. By the way, it's fantastic when you have a boulder because you have a valid excuse. The emigrant edge says, I got to go over it. Can't go over it? I'm going around it. Can't go around it? Got to go under it. Can't go under it? I'm blowing the bleeding thing up and going through it. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. My staff will sometimes, because I'm on one hand a pretty easygoing guy to work for, but then on other occasions, I kind of scare my own staff sometimes because my staff will sometimes present me with a problem or we can't do this because. And it's like, um, I don't even know if it's like a red rag to a bull. It's like a, an appetizer. Here's the thing. This is happening. I have no idea how this is happening. And we're going to figure this out, aren't we? And they're all just looking at me like I'm some kind of crazy man. But ultimately, many of them working in conjunction with me know we're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. End of story. You know, when the recession hit, we were in the real estate space predominantly. Almost all of our clientele were just in real estate. We were 10 times bigger than our nearest competitor. The real estate industry went into a tailspin, a catastrophic tailspin. Think about this. 40% of the people in the industry left. And of those that were left, they were making 57% less than they made. Now, the real estate industry and the lending industry went into a tailspin because it lost 30% of its value. I'm not in the real estate space. I'm in the income that real estate agents and lenders make that they can invest into training and self-development and coaching. And the income in the real estate industry went down by 87%. So basically, the recession we faced was three times that the size of the economy. I had 27 competitors at the time in the coaching and training business in real estate. Major companies, Prudential Real Estate, 50,000 agents, been around forever, disappeared, sold for debt. Companies disappeared, organizations disappeared, banks disappeared. Boom. And here's a little Obafinian company. And guess what? It was never even a question. I never once even considered that we'd be going out of business. I never even considered it. Now, we had to make some changes. There were some, definitely some rough times. No question about it. But it was never even entered my mind. Now, here's the thing. My American-born wife, it never entered her mind either. Because she also has a do-whatever-it-takes mindset. But that's why she's an Olympian. Okay? So here's the bottom line. When the recession ended, there was us and one other competitor left. Now, years later, the market's great again. A lot of people are getting back into coaching and training business. But we have greatly expanded our market share as an organization because we were there for people during the tough times. We hung through the do-whatever-it-takes mindset. And now what happens? We have as much business as we want because the do-whatever-it-takes mindset persevered during the tough times. The clients know we were a rock then. And we'll be there for them again in the future. So powerful stuff. And I tell you that story. I tell you my own stuff just to let you know how it applies. You know, there's a lot of people in the world today. They write a book or they do a seminar or a training. And they never actually did anything other than what did you do? I wrote a book. I'm not knocking those people. There's great information out there. But understand this. I'm a businessman who speaks. I'm a guy who built a fortune before I wrote a book. I'm a guy who built a, a great business before I started sharing with anyone else how to go build a business. So I'm going to give you those examples. So here's a couple of points on a do-whatever-it-takes mindset. Have a keen perspective and a remembrance of uh, 
that whole dynamic of where you came from. And I'll talk more about that later. Okay? You don't want to kind of forget where you came from. And I'll talk more about that. But you also don't want to go back to where you were. Right? Now, again, for many people during the recession, they lost a lot of their net worth and so on and so forth. And the conversation came by many of these folks by way of coaching was, how do I get it back? And I always tell people after a big loss, the goal is not to get it back. The goal is to learn from what you had and where you were and then to go find a new definition of success for yourself, you know? Because just going back, at the end of the day, that won't be a fulfilling goal for you, okay? So do whatever it takes. It's a mindset. By the way, it shows up in your language. So let's say you're serving a customer. Let's say you're in in some kind of scenario with someone who's not happy and they're giving you feedback. When you just say, okay, let me see what I can do. I'll do my best. You know, could you imagine if all the airlines used those, not only those dialogues, but they actually tried. Okay, you know what? I see the problem. Let me see what I can do. What creates the frustration? No, you booked the flight. You know, you messed up. Your bags are lost. That's your problem. Or whatever it is, you know, just a little bit of care where it's like, let me see what I can do. You know what? I'm going to do my best. Let me try everything I can here. A do-whatever-it-takes mindset then shows up in the dialogue, and the dialogue then impacts the mindset again. And it positively feeds upon itself, feeds upon itself. Do you have a do-whatever-it-takes mindset? Once you do, obstacles become opportunities. Problems become a chance to serve. The best clients I ever had in my career were ones that I had a problem with at some point in time. And when I went the extra mile, showed them what I could do, it demonstrated for them how trustable I was. Think about your best relationships. You've usually been through some downtimes together, persevered and come out the other side. Okay, Alexander Graham Bell, 1876, got the patent for the telephone. Again, another major, major inventor. Just tons of patents, tons of phenomenal life-changing inventions. A Scottish immigrant who came to America with nothing. He said, a person, as a general rule, owes very little to what he or she is born with. A person is what they make of themselves, okay? This quote was originally written in uh, a man this and a man that, but that's how they spoke 100 years ago. Powerful stuff. Trait three, a willingness to outwork others. If one of the things that undermines how to make it big in America is an inconsistent work ethic, a willingness to outwork others is important. Now, just I give you a concept. I'm not a guy who advocates for 100-hour work weeks and promotes workaholism. I believe that's more of a statement of inefficiency. But the fact is, when you're working, are you all in? Are you checking social media? Are you kind of cleaning up the desk and doodling around? Are you actually on it? You know, are you easily distracted? You know, for me, when I'm in, I'm in. When I'm working, skin and hair flying, Tasmanian devil. And when I'm not, it's down tools. I'm relaxing, I'm reading, I'm recovering, I'm with my family, I'm doing whatever it is. But when I'm working, don't even get in the way. I'm on it, you know? So have this all-in effort and energy, okay? You're committed to reaching your goal, and you're willing to work basically harder than anyone else on the job. Here's the thing. One of the things about it, folks want to know, you know, here I am, 19, 20 years of age, you know, coming out of debt from motorcycle accidents, and I'm sitting in people's homes. Um, You know, my first listing appointment as a realtor, it was with a borrowed car that looked like it had been in a demolition derby. How was it I was able to get people to do business with me? You know, I tell lots of funny stories about it, but do I really ever tell people what I... I'd look someone in the eye and say, here's the thing. I may not know the answer to every question, but I promise you, I'll get every answer you need. I'll tell you this. 
I might not be the longest person in the business. I, there might be people who have 30 years more in this business than I do. But I'll tell you this, no one's going to work harder for you than I will. That's how I got people's business. And I kept that promise. And I was on it like white on rice. And I earned people's trust. And then I did more than I was getting paid for. I always went the extra mile. Not once or twice. Every single client I've ever had in my life, including the thousands of clients I serve today, I've always given people more than they paid for. Always. I'll innovate things. I'll come up with things. One of my executive meetings the other day, they were doing an analysis. We had a few clients that had some problems and this and other. And my CFO did an analysis. And he said, Brian, in the last nine years, you've developed six major programs at the cost of X amount of millions of dollars that you have given to your existing customers and not charged them for, exceeding people's expectations. It's a willingness to outwork others. I've had a number of staff people who used to work for some of our competitors and they were like, God, we're just happy to be here. It's a great culture. We love what you do. But it was a real pain in the butt to compete against you guys. And yeah, we are a pain in the butt to compete with because we work and we get it done and make no apologies for it. The next piece is you've got to understand the law of the harvest, right? You reap what you sow. Here's the thing. You've got to put a lot of seeds in the ground, and you've got to wait in order for a harvest to come. You've got to fertilize. You've got to water. You've got to do all that stuff, listen, before. You've got to do that before. You plant seeds before. You fertilize before. You water before. You till the ground before. You do all the work before, and you get paid after. Income's a trailing effect of the work you do. It's a trailing effect. It's not the leading effect. What do people want today? They want to put the seed in the ground and check it out three days later. I mean, look at how people are, instead of investing on the stock market, they trade in the stock market. Okay, and again, there's probably people who are professional traders listening to this show today. Look, I'm not knocking what you do for a living. I'm just saying this. The law of the harvest says you reap what you sow. What kind of a foolish farmer would expect a big harvest and never did a lot of seeding? Be pretty foolish. And so... Don't be a foolish farmer. You've got to understand the law of the harvest. you also got to understand the timing of the law of the harvest. But I put the seeds in the ground. Well, how long do you know that it, in your heart of hearts that it takes for these seeds to work? But, uh, Brian, I've been planting and planting. I haven't gotten any results. Okay, you've got to keep analyzing. You've got to keep understanding. Is there progress? doesn't mean is there results. Is there progress? Are you making inroads? Are you getting better feedback? Are you getting better reviews? Are you getting more endorsements? Are you getting more referrals? Are you getting that? If you're getting that, then keep on going. If you're not getting that, you need to keep adjusting. The other part, I think, that an immigrant brings to the table that really helps them make it big in America with this willingness to outwork others, I really feel the sense of urgency is a big deal. And this is probably the one I work with on my kids the most, not as natural-born immigrants, but ultimately having a sense of urgency. You know, when you're an immigrant, you have a sense of urgency. Why? Because you have limited resources when you come here and you've got to get it going. So now, how does this match up with impatience? I need the results now. The sense of urgency means you're on it now. I talked about just do it. Well, the sense of urgency means you just do it. You realize that you don't have all the time there is. Augmentino said failures live as if they had a thousand years to live. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get to it tomorrow. You know, it's like people go, okay, no, you know, I'm going to do this in the fall. Okay, that's really what I'm going to mount up and do. But, you know, I get to the fall and, you know, the kids are in sports and there's got this kind of class going on and this and that and the other. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do it in the start of the year. New year, I'm going to come out, 
Guns are blazing. You know, when I came out, you know, have you ever seen weather like this? It's been just the worst winter we've ever had. I mean, nobody's buying, nobody's moving. You know, it's a terrible time of year. You know, okay, you know, wait till the weather gets a little better. And then it's okay, you know what? The kids are on spring break. My God, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. You know, I don't take a little vacation once in a while. I won't have any balance. I only balance. And a year goes by. And then another year goes by. And then another year goes by. You remember the old song, How Did I Get Here? Watching the days go by, you know? So a willingness to outwork others, kind of have that all-in energy, understand the law of the harvest, have a sense of urgency, very, very powerful. Trait number four, probably the biggest trait, and I've spoken on this many times, I would attribute this particular trait to my greatest source of strength, my greatest source of success. And it's a heartfelt spirit of gratitude. A heartfelt spirit of gratitude. Cicero said many thousands of years ago, gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but it's the parent of all others. And we don't talk about virtues anymore, but we could talk about character, for example. If you come from a place of character and you develop in your character, you grow in your character, here's what happens. Those traits in your character will develop other traits. I'm going to say this. If I was voracious in one thing as a father, it was please and thank you was not an option. And it's not an option today. And my kids are all big, you know, I got big brawny guys and great gals, but they know we're at a restaurant together last night and the waiter and the waitress came by and, you know, we're having a coffee. Okay, what do you say, kids? I mean, now... My kids will do it with each other and so on and so forth. But please and thank you is just not an option. Now, you could say that's a rote, robotic response. And maybe it is, but here's what I know. What we say influences our thinking. Gratitude is ultimately a force. Now, let me tell you this. It's also becoming a rare force, which makes you stand out, stand up, and exponentially change the perspective of who you are in the marketplace. Gratitude is incredible. Here's the thing. I have a company that produces over a million personal notes a month that we give to our clients. And those folks are writing notes every day and they're thanking people and appreciating people everywhere they go. It's just amazing. Have you ever seen somebody like, just try it. I I can't tell you the number of times I've got upgraded on a first-class seat just because I was respectful, nice to the counter person, and they were having a hard time, whatever else, and I just said, hey, you're doing a great job. I appreciate it. You don't own the airline. You're not the mechanic. I can tell you're doing your best, and I just want you to know you're doing a great job. It's a tough job you have. It's amazing. Now, I don't do that as some cheap, manipulative technique to get a first-class seat. I'm just sharing with you that people go much further with gratitude and appreciation. GE did a study a few years ago. They spent $400,000 studying a ton of their employees, and it came out that people would rather be appreciated than given more money by a factor of nine to one. Gratitude is awesome, and it's becoming rarer because apparently in a modern parental style, it's too much of an imposition to ask a kid to say please and thank you. Here's the deal. You know, whatever people do with their kids is their business. I know this. I know what I've stood for with mine. I know how I live it with my own life. And I just know this. Gratitude grows you. It grows your character. And it also grows your presence in the marketplace. That's why I've said for 30 years that writing personal notes to thank people 
is the smallest activity I've ever done that's grown my business more than anything I've ever done. Nothing. Nothing in my life has cost less money, taken less time, and produced bigger results than writing personal notes of gratitude. Nothing. It just grows the heart. And so it's not some ethereal thing to me. It's not some sit in a lotus position deal and embrace gratitude. This is an action step. And what it ultimately develops in a person is an attitude of the heart. And gratitude is transformational in the attitude of the heart. Here's why. You can't have gratitude and entitlement in your mind at the same time. You can't have gratitude and cynicism in your mind at the same time towards the same event. You can have it towards different things, but towards something in specific, you can't. You can't say, man, I'm so thankful for this country and this country's going to hell. You can't say, I'm so appreciative of this person and this person's a jerk. You just can't do it. The mind can't do that. And so when you choose gratitude, it transforms the attitude of the heart. Just try it. Just do a day where every time you have a chance to complain, gripe, or whine, you take the opportunity to be grateful for something in that element that you're facing, something even that's in a problem, something that's in that relationship. Say, what's the one thing I could be thankful for right now? Do it for a day. I'm going to promise you this. It'll be the one of the best days you ever have in your life. Here's my goal. My goal is to get you hooked. It's like the Coke dealer gives you the first hit for free. I want to give you a day of gratitude. Just do it. Just do it now and just do it again. It'll change your world. Emigrants have an attitude of gratitude. I, I tell a story of a gentleman that I won't go into detail. I have the long version of it in the book, but ultimately this guy was... Uh, his parents were killed by the Nazis during the war. He was being brought into the Hitler Youth, which a lot of people don't know that orphan kids were often conscripted in to the very organization that killed their parents. And um, this kid and another boy were on an airplane being sent to basically a camp to be indoctrinated in the Hitler Youth. The plane gets shot down. These two boys survive. They hike their way to Switzerland. They somehow get from Switzerland, across Europe, onto a boat, get to Canada. This young fella gets across. Canada ends up in Vancouver and eventually goes from Vancouver down into Seattle. Lives in Seattle, goes to work in Bethlehem Steel. Meets an Irish girl, which obviously made his life so much better. And uh, they get married. They had no kids. But at the end of their life, this ordinary couple, she was a seamstress. He was a, a guy working in a steel mill. But the reason I know their story is they caught national attention when they passed away that they left their estate of $847,000 to the IRS. Now, some of you might be driving listening to this and you might be over a bridge, over a, a river or something, and you're like, I don't want you to crash. And I'm not saying that on the financial advice that I give this couple, the best use of their money would have been to leave their entire estate to the IRS. But think about this. Just think about the flip side of this. These folks must have been so appreciative and so thankful to the country they were living in that they thought the best thing they could do with their net worth at the end of their life was to leave it to the country of their adoption. Now, you could say, that's stupid and this and that, but think about this. Here's the value. Here's why they were mental millionaires. Here's why they had the emigrant edge. Every single day, they would have said at least one time a day, this is a great country. This is the greatest country in the world. I can't believe we get to live here. 
They came from places that didn't have the same opportunities, perhaps didn't have the same freedom. Uh, now they're living in this place where they appreciate it to such a degree they left their estate. I'm going to tell you this. They had a wealth of spirit. They had a heartfelt spirit of gratitude. It was an attitude of the heart. And I guarantee I never met these people in my life. But I guarantee they must have communicated that every day of their lives. How much they appreciate and valued. Let me tell you this. That's a wealthy life. It changes everything. I wish I had more time. Buy the book. How's that? Trade five. <laughs> A bonus to invest. Richard Branson said, the brave may not live forever, but the cautious do not live at all. So a bonus to invest also looks like uh, taking risk. The great Brian Tracy that I'm doing an interview with here for a podcast next week, actually. He was one of the endorsers of the book. uh, Very appreciative of that. And he loved this point. He wanted to get into this altogether, the boldness to invest, the willingness to take a risk. He said, Brian, if you just wrote on that one topic alone, this thing would be so valuable. Because ultimately, people get cautious, people are afraid to lose, and sometimes people play the game of life trying to avoid losing. So I'm going to give you a couple of things to invest in. The first thing is invest in yourself. One of my first mentors, one of the first exposures I had to personal growth and development was the great Jim Rohn. And Jim Rohn, uh, I went to a seminar of his. I was so fired up. And I, I was just not the kind of guy. I'm not a front row sitter. I'm more of a back row guy. I'm a guy, if I knew someone and I've been interacting with what they provide, I'm typically not the guy to, to go up and see somebody or interact with them or whatever else. Sometimes I might write them a note for sure. But I was so inspired by this fella, I said, I'm going to buy his book, and I'm going to wait in line to meet him. And it was a long line. And I'd never done anything like this in my life. But I walked up to him, and I said, Mr. Rowan, I'm, I'm a young Irish immigrant. I'm just starting out. Had a bit of a rough start, but I, I want you to know this. I am so inspired and fired up. He looked me in the eye. He signed my book and shook my hand, and he said to me a statement that he had said from stage. But when he personalized it, it changed my life. He said, Brian... He said, actually, Mr. Buffini is what he said. If you will work harder on yourself than you do on your job, you'll go from making a living to making a fortune. And I never even had the concept of what the word fortune meant. I certainly never associated with me. I grew up on the south side of Dublin, a painter's son. But work harder on myself. You go from making a living to making a fortune. You know, that's when I decided, okay. I didn't know fully what he meant at the time. But I knew the essence of it. He wanted me to go work on myself and I was going to read the book and listen to the tapes and that led me to more. So the first thing is invest in yourself. The second thing is invest in your vocation. What's your vocation? You know, here's the thing. I never took a class in how to speak or whatever else, but here's what I did do. Once I knew I was going to present and, and teach what I had learned after a decade on stage and people were asking me to do that, what I did was I went and listened to every speaker I could. I read books on writing. I read books on presenting. Not to copy anybody else, but to develop my own style. And I became a student of it. When I went to speak on real estate, I would study the reports. I remember one time where I was quoting statistics at a very large event from a report that the National Association of Realtors produces. And this man came up to me at the end and he's shaking his finger at me. He says, "Uh, where'd you get that information from, young man? He said, I'm the president of the National Association of Realtors. And I questioned some of those statistics you were showing. Now, the beautiful thing was on stage as a prop, I pulled out this report that I'd actually gotten it from. And it was the annual report 
on buyers and sellers from the National Association of Realtors. And that organization spent 400 grand to go build that report. The difference between me and the president is I actually read the bloody thing. And so I'm quoting it on stage, and he's chastising me on where did I get this information. I handed the book. Now, it was funny, but it was literally the man's face turned red in front of me. I said, you should read this stuff. It's really good. But I was investing in my vocation. There's stuff to learn. Now, here's the deal. I don't know much about the Russians and the American election. I don't know much about Games of Thrones. I don't know much about voter fraud. I don't know much about the president's Twitter account. I I don't know much about fake news. I don't know much about a lot of things. But I can tell you this. I don't know if there's much I don't know about the real estate business, about the economy, about speaking, about presenting, about coaching, about personal growth and development. Because that's my area of vocation. And I pour myself into it. The third thing to invest in is invest in others. So invest in yourself, invest in your vocation, invest in others. The great Helen Keller said, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. Investing in people is important. Now here's the key though, you must invest only to the degree that they desire to achieve themselves. You know, I am the patron saint of the lost cause. I love anybody that says they want to grow. I used to make this mistake all the time. People come to me, Mr. Ruffini, oh yeah, great, can you meet for lunch? Yeah, I would. Oh, can we do this? Can we do that? Now I've learned, okay, I put a lot of time into people sometimes. There was no fruit. So now I'm the kind of person where someone says, oh, I like this, or can you help me with that, and whatever else, and I'll send them a book. And the next time they interact with me, I'll ask them what you get from the book. Now, let me tell you right now. Now, this may sound a little harsh to you, but I'm over-opportunized with people who want my help. If they haven't read the book, it's the last time we're ever going to talk about helping them. I listen to them. It might be someone I know. It might even be a family member. But I won't have any conversations about helping them. Because, you know, for some people, the drug they want is to be able to pour out what they're not. And they have a listening ear. And that then satiates it. It's like the person who buys the gym equipment or the membership to the gym and never goes because I I satiated that need. I have too little time, too much opportunity. I invest in others. So I always start people, I'll give them a little resource, depend on who they are, small book, something to listen to, whatever else. If they do nothing with it, fair enough, fair enough. But don't ask me to spend any time on you. Now, if you do show interest and you do take it on board and you do I'll go the next step and I'll go the next step now I, I've learned over time how to layer out those next steps I built a company to take people down those next steps I have coaches and trainers that do all this stuff so let me share with you successful immigrants one of the edges they have is a bonus to invest they invest in themselves they invest in their vocation and they invest in others powerful stuff trait number six is a commitment to delay gratification Okay, The commitment to delay gratification. Now, we talked about in episode one how this is really something that undermines people all the time, that microwave mentality. I want it and I want it now. Do you remember uh, Willy Wonka? Remember Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? The first one, the original one. Nothing like that, Gene Wilder. And there was a great character, Veruca. Veruca was the spoiled daughter. Daddy, I want one of those geese. I want the golden eggs. I want it, and I want it now. And da 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 Oompa loompa lumpity doo. I've got another lesson for you. Didn't end up well for Veruca, did it? She went down the incinerator hole. They were just hoping she was too big to block up the pipe. Remember that? 
Not a good ending. But here's the deal. We all have a little inner Veruca. We want it now. Think about it. Think about it. When we're on our phones, you see kids? Like, oh, I'm downloading something like, huh? I'm, I'm downloading. It's like, hey, this thing's got to go to space and come back from a satellite. Can you wait an eighth of a It's got to go to space. Hello. You know, relax. But now it's like, oh, instant, instant. And that's why the world is so instant. And that's why we can get it now. We want it now. Let me tell you a couple of principles. What's quickly built is quickly torn down. Fortunes that are rapidly made are fortunes that are quickly torn apart, come adversity. Businesses that are quickly constructed are quickly torn down. Okay? And so you have to delay gratification. You have to be willing to put off what you want now to have everything you want later. I tell a story. When my bride and I got married, you know, here I am. You know, little white boy from south side of Dublin meets this gorgeous African-American girl from Sumter, South Carolina. She's on the U.S. national team that ultimately goes on to play in uh, Korea in the 1988 Olympics, you know. And so I wine her and dine her. I fly out to Georgia and I do the guess who's coming to dinner, meet her parents. I go to a family reunion. Can you imagine? 125 black folks, one little snowflake at the party. You know, out of my element, you know, and I'll be honest with you. You know, I grew up in Dublin. Dublin's a much more multicultural city today. But in 1985, when I was leaving Ireland, there were not a lot of people of different races and ethnicities in Ireland. So it's not quite true. But I used to say the first black person I ever met, I married kind of thing, you know. And so here I am and I want to wine and dine her and sweep her off her feet and whatever else. But here's the thing. We made a commitment that we had goals together. We put a budget together. And so we decided, okay, well, once we got married, we said uh, we're going to live within our means. We won't ever go on a vacation that's not paid for before we go. Now, you know the story. I was 23 when I got married. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. I had just come out of having a bunch of debt from motorcycle accidents. I I was a, a brand new realtor struggling to get things going. So, you know, I mean, we didn't have a ton of money. So I remember, okay, we want to go on vacations, want to have a trip. Well, I would have loved to you know, taking her to Hawaii and whatever else. But we went to Palm Springs. We went to Palm Springs, which is a desert community about two hours east of where we live in San Diego. And people love to go to Palm Springs. The movie stars used to go to Palm Springs, Bob Hope and Dean Martin. But they went to Palm Springs in the winter. Because in the winter, Palm Springs is 80 degrees. When could we afford to go to Palm Springs? In August. When it's two and a half degrees cooler than the face of the sun. So we would go to Palm Springs. It's $400 a night to stay at this hotel in the winter. But it's August. It's $99 for the weekend, unlimited golf. Okay? In order to play golf, we used to tee off about 4.30 in the morning. So classic stuff. Bottom line is we're delaying gratification. Delaying gratification. Years later, I remember we had moved into this one house. We were there about six months. And it was a larger house than what we had had before. And one of my staff members comes by, and we were doing some work at the house. And as he walked in, he saw there were three rooms in the house that had no furniture in it at all. And he's like, everything okay, boss? Everything okay? <laughs> like, is my paycheck going to be okay? It's like, no, we're not buying furniture today. We're going to buy furniture when we can afford it. We're buying real estate and making our investments grow. Now, here's the deal. And I don't say this to kind of upset you. I say this to help kind of challenge you to have a go. Years later, instead of Palm Springs, my wife and I bought a... A very, very nice home on the big island of Hawaii. Handmade custom furniture. 
in our home today that's several homes removed from my wife get to design our house build our house custom make the furniture that here's the deal we delayed gratification we delayed gratification so we could get everything we wanted ultimately but we had to give up what we wanted now you know what when you leave your home country and come to a new place you realize you're already delaying some gratification you're leaving the gratification of friends and family and loved one and the knowledge of the comfort of the culture you come from the humor the foods the language the traditions the sports teams the essence of your community the spiritual connection your relations all of that and you're having to move to a new place and so already you're into this dynamic of delayed gratification and the successful ones continue on with that well guess what you don't have to be born across the sea in order to learn how to delay gratification you need to have a very good idea what you want the dream needs to be compelling the reasons need to be strong and if you have those strong reasons you too will learn to delay gratification and you can have everything you want later if you're willing to give up what you want right now again brian tracy who I mentioned, very excited for our upcoming interview, said the ability to discipline yourself to delay gratification in the short term in order to enjoy the greater rewards in the long term is the indispensable prerequisite for success. His series, The Psychology of Success, was one of the series. I listened to the tapes until the tapes broke. So I didn't come out of the womb with all this stuff. I can tell you this. All of these pieces I'm giving you are what I learned along the way. I applied along the way. They changed my life along the way. The last trait that I want to share with you that's very applicable to everybody is uh, one of the things that gives the emigrants, the successful ones, an edge is they have an appreciation of where they came from. Remembering where you come from gives you perspective, reminds you to be grateful, and keeps you humble. Now, let me take you on a little different tack here. It also helps you not give up it helps you persevere and a great example of this is we see this every day in our coaching program we'll have clients call up uh, i'm not making progress i don't see the results i'm ready to quit and it usually happens somewhere between four and six months into the process why because they heard oh my gosh here's this story this gal who was in this terrible spot and she's become hugely successful i want that too but people have this idea of how long that takes and the amount of times that we say to somebody, we're able to show, we track from, hey, look, here's what you're doing. Here's the referrals you're after getting. Here's all the progress you're after making. Don't give up now. Now, that's not some coy script to keep a client as a client. That's a dynamic of giving people perspective. Remember where you came from. Remember the pain you were in when you started this thing. Remember how frustrated you didn't know where the next deal was coming from. Remember how frustrated you were you couldn't pay the bills. Remember how disorganized you were and you were pulling your hair out. Well, people forget, and when we lose perspective of where we come from, we make emotional decisions in the here and now. And that becomes the undoing of our success. That becomes the unwinding of the progress we're on. You know, the compounding effect of our success. Albert Einstein said, compound interest was the eighth wonder of the world. Those who understand it, receive it, and those who don't, pay it. Most people will never get the economic benefits of the eighth wonder of the world because they stop doing the consistent investing over a period of time. That's what happens. And the market goes up and they're flying high and the market goes down and they bail out. And they go in and they go out and they go up and they go down in and out of the market. I was watching a program. A friend of mine was on CNBC Squawk Box the other day. So I tuned in because I wanted to see him. 
And it's a good show. It's all about stock market and companies and everything else. And before that, there's a guy being interviewed. And he was one of these big market fund guys. And his advice to the audience was, ah, there's a bang coming. I would get all my money out of the market now. And Joe Kernan, the fellow who runs the show, says, well, when should they come back in? He goes, somewhere in the next 60 to 70 days. For the love of Mary. For the love of Mary. You know, the greatest investor in the world, Warren Buffett, they said the stock market is a place where capital gets transferred from the impatient to the patient. That's what it is. The bottom line is when you have an appreciation from where you come from, you keep the bigger picture. You don't make the emotional decision and you don't undermine your success. I'm not just talking about investing in stock or investing in real estate. I'm talking about investing in relationships. I'm talking about remember where you came from. Remember the dumbest thing you've ever done in your life. I mean, some of you have a selection process there. But remember the dumbest things you've done in your life. Remember the the darkest days you've ever had. Not to wallow in it and and sit on a therapist's chair. I'm saying remember those dark times. Remember the world. And go, my God, I'm so appreciative of where I am now. I'm going to keep chipping away, chipping away. Because you know what? Each day I'm getting further away from that. I'm making progress on that. And away I go. So remembering where you came from. Where it helps for me, remembering where I came from is a big deal. Because I come from Ireland. And I'm George and Therese Buffini's son. I'm, I'm Harry Buffini's grandson. Harry Buffini trained me in the patent business. And I was 10 years of age when I first went to Harry's and taught me how to hold a brush and taught me how to sand and fill, undercoat and prime. And he taught me this principle. Every day when you're finished your work with Harry, he'd say, can you put your name to that, Brian? When you went on the job site, he said, can you put your name to that? If you did a job and it didn't match up to our standard, we had to do it without the client ever seeing it because you had to, can you put your name to it? I remember where I come from because to this day, every time I do a job, if I do a podcast, can I put my name to it? If I do a a broadcast, can I put my name to it? If I do a seminar, can I put my name to it? If I build a training program, can I put my name to it? We provide a service for our clients, can I put my name to it? When we hire people, can I put my name to them? It's a big deal. We have thousands of applicants to come work at Buffini Company every year. We have to put our name to the people we hire. It's a big deal. It's hard to get hired here. People love working here. But one of the things is we have to put our name to it. Those principles, you remember where you come from. You know, in my home, above the fireplace in my office, I have a painting. It's called The Emigrant Ship, spelt the right way, E-M-M-I-G-R-A-N-T. And it's from an Irish painter named Edwin Hayes. It's a ship in Dublin Harbour. And there's a small little rowboat going out to the ship. Now, a lot of people don't realize the slave trade ended in England uh, right just around the early 1800s, many years before it did in America. And they still had all these ships that were used for slaving. But they didn't know what to do with them, so they repurposed them. Well, when the Irish famine came, a lot of those old slaver ships were used to transport the Irish, not only to America, but Australia and all parts foreign. I have that painting in my office every day because I always want to remember where I came from. I remember the struggle of the people and the land I came from. I remember the struggle that I had myself. I remember the lack of opportunity that I had, the lack of resources I had, and I look through those eyes at the opportunity I have today. And you know what it does? It creates a voracious openness to learn so I can pursue my dreams. It keeps me going to have a do-whatever-takes mindset. It makes sure that I'm willing to outwork others. I see that slavership and where many of my countrymen came from. It keeps me full of gratitude. 
I came on a TWA flight. I had 92 books in my wallet. I didn't come on a repurposed slave ship to America. It keeps me bold to invest. I'm excited about the future. Yeah, I don't feel like I've made it and I'm done. I feel like I've had a great first half and I'm really looking forward to the second half. I've always said, boy, this would be a dangerous place to start a company from. And that's how I view it. I'm still willing to delay gratification. I will say, as I've gotten older and more Americanized, this is the one I struggle with the most because I'm a person of resources. I have people. But I would say this, the future of Buffini and Company depends more on my willingness to delay gratification than any other trait, to be disciplined and patient. Our future success is secured with that. And then the appreciation of where I came from. I, I will add one other thing that I have an appreciation of where I landed. And I have an appreciation for the country I came to, the people who received me, the opportunities I have, the customers I have. I have a very much an appreciation for San Diego. I never take that for granted, I can tell you. And I'm very, very thankful to do this work. And I'm very thankful to all of you who tune into this podcast and who take whatever information I have to heart and apply whatever part of it that works for you. I hope you eat the meat and throw away the bones. I also hope you refer it to your friends and tell your family about it. I hope you'll uh, give yourself the gift of how to make a big in America by getting a copy of The Emigrant Edge. I hope you take the next step and buy a copy for your best friend who needs it as well. And then what I'll do is I'll take that money and I'll go reinvest it to reach more people with the very same message. That's what I'm after. Our goal here at Buffini and Company and with the Brian Buffini Show is to impact and improve the lives of people. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends. And I leave you with a, a little phrase that I always do because it also helps me remember where I came from. And it's from uh, my grandfather who used to say this. May the roads rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time.